please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. And out of John 8, we are taking a series of messages on the truth shall set us free. And uh, last week we talked about the truth setting us free from myths. And today our subject is the truth sets us free from performance. Colossians 2, there is a powerful passage on our freedom in Christ uh, that begins in verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, the law, the ordinances of the law, to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, on the basis of that truth, let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And our text extends to verse 23. We'll look at it for a moment. But this passage explains the truth that God has set us free from the demands of the law and the need to fulfill those demands which sets us free then from the burden of performing, whether it is to please God or to please others or to please some standard we have set for ourselves. The thrust of this passage is to remind us that we are to rest in God and He is pleased with us, not on the basis of what we've done or deserved, but on the basis of Christ. Now let me say that one more time. I want no young person to be mistaken about the truth of grace. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that God has freed us from the need to perform in order to please Him. It is not your performance which pleases God. It is your faith in what Christ did for us so that we rest in Him and His work and not in our own. That is the truth. I was standing on John's front yard and I had brought over some, uh, some uh, Durban and some fertilizer and seed so that he could aerate his yard. And, you know, you really got to teach your children when is the right time to fertilize, when's the right time to aerate, when's the right time. Dads, make sure your boys... Uh, know that as they leave home and get a starter home and so forth. This is very important, isn't it? Amen? I mean, if you don't teach them that, who's going to? I mean, they don't have time to listen to Jerry Baker and find out how to pour beer and mothballs on the yard. So uh, dad's got to tell them. So anyway, um, uh, I was there and I was standing in an old pair of shorts and an old pair of tennis shoes and an old shirt and a boy walked up to me, about 12 years old, John's neighbor, and said, I thought Baptists didn't wear shorts. <laughs> here, you, here you are, a Baptist preacher, looking like this. 
Well, that engendered a most interesting conversation, but it reminded me what most people in the world think about Baptists. Baptists don't do this. They don't do that. They don't wear thus. They don't look like this. Where does the Bible say the Baptists shouldn't wear shorts? Especially when you're working on a hot day. Amen? But that was his impression of Baptists. The Baptists cannot wear shorts. And if you're a Baptist, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do the other thing, and you better not do this. Now, we call that legalism. A lot of people in this world, in this city, well, I'm, I'm going to get very specific. A lot of people in this city do not know what to do about me. Because I, because I believe all of the Bible. I'm an inerrantist. I believe Jesus is literally coming, but I am not a legalist. I believe there are godly standards. I believe in holiness before the Lord, but I'm not a legalist and I'm not a secondary separationist. That is, if you disagree with me and you have a friend that disagrees with me, secondary separation says, I must not even have anything to do with your friend, let alone you. Because that second friend down the line, see, one, two friend down the line, he doesn't agree with me. That's called secondary separation. So Joshua informed me that I was out of line and God was unhappy because I had on shorts working in the yard. Now, I would ask how many of you agree with him, but I don't think I want to risk that this morning. But legalism comes from perfectionism, and perfectionism comes out of a performance doctrine. And a performance doctrine comes out of the idea that I must do things in order to be saved and do things in order to be godly and do things in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's our subject this morning. It may not ring your bell, but stay with me. You might need it to help somebody else. God wants his people free. When he called Moses, why did he call Moses? He said, go to Pharaoh and tell him what, class? Do you remember? Let my people go. I want them free. When Israel sinned and disobeyed God and worshiped idols, what was it God took from them? He took their freedom and put them in captivity. And captivity is always in the scriptures a sign of judgment. So Judah, you're in captivity for 70 years to the Chaldeans. And in the New Testament, the messianic mission was to set at liberty to put free those who are what? Do you remember? Captives who are prison bound. I want to tell you, God is interested in your freedom. He wants you free from liquor. He wants you free from drugs. He doesn't want you to be a slave to anything. He wants you freed from greed, freed from lust, freed from your anger, freed from your past, God always wants his people free. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth, it is the truth of God, which sets us free 
from whatever binds us. Now notice there are three things we're freed from here in this passage. First, we're freed from the law in verse 13. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, the law had made a claim against you and you had broken the law, so the law had a legitimate claim and had hold on you. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Why? Because he has wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. See, Jesus not only died for your sins, he died to fulfill the law. And he not only is your substitute in death, paying the penalty for your sin, he is your substitute in life. Because he lived under the law, the law made all the claims it could against him and never had a legitimate charge. He never broke the law, so he fulfilled the law. And by faith, when I receive Christ as my Savior, not only does his death on the cross pay the penalty for my sin, but his lovely, perfect, holy, sinless life meets the conditions of the law and satisfies the law completely. So just as his body was nailed to the cross and the nails were signs of death, the law was nailed there too. It died. So the law doesn't raise its ugly head to me. It doesn't point an accusing finger and say, Jack, Mayberry, shame on you. Yesterday you broke the law. You lied to your neighbor. I'm not accusing you. I'm just illustrating, okay? <laughs> and... Uh, and Jack stands up and says, the law can't bother me because even if I did lie to my neighbor, the law was nailed to the cross and is dead and I'm dead to the law and Christ fulfilled the law for me. Thus, he has the power to forgive me if I break it and to free me from, its, from enslavement to the law. Not only that, notice verse 14, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Jesus kind of, uh, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus kind of put to death the law and then dragged the body all over glory and said, see that, there's no law anymore, it died, triumphing over it. The picture is a Roman general who's just beaten his enemy and he drags him in chains through the streets so that everybody can see the enemy, the, the general of the other side has been beaten. And he was made a spectacle and, and, uh, and, and, and the Roman general triumphed over him. Every time I read that passage, <laughs> some years ago I preached, a to- I think of this, I preached a topical sermon through Colossians on the adequacy of Jesus. I mean a series of sermons on the adequacy of Christ. And about the time I come to this chapter, there was a self-defense expert on WSJS who was telling you what to do if anybody ever pulls a gun on you. And this is what he said. If somebody ever pulls a gun on you and puts it right at you, I mean, he's right in front of you and you've got the gun, point blank. He said, uh, don't try to grab the gun. If you're going to move or run or do anything, always turn sideways because if you turn sideways, he has less chance to hit you. Now, that would be true for some, but for some of us, it would not be true. It would increase the opportunities of getting shot. You know, I mean, if you turn like this, you give them another, another uh, <laughs> target. Jesus took the teeth out of the devil and the law. They don't have any weapon against us. 
The weapon of making us feel guilty for not keeping the law, it's gone. He took the gun out of the devil's hand. But we still let the devil make us feel guilty and shame us. And in that way, we are slaves to an old legalistic approach to the law that God wants us free from. And then the Bible says, therefore, remember what I said, what we believe determines our behavior. If you believe that, verse 16, let nobody judge you in food. If I want to eat pizza, you let me eat pizza. Amen. Now he's talking about food that had been offered to idols. He's talking about the Judaizers who wanted to go back and say, don't you dare, don't you dare eat those, those uh, pigs or those, uh, what else was, con- oysters? <laughs> Boy. And he said, don't let anybody judge you in food to drink regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath because all those things of the law were a shadow, but Christ is the substance. And when the substance arrives, the shadow is put behind. And Christ is here. And we don't need those things any longer. That's why I don't, I keep the Sabbath principle the seventh day. But I worship Jesus on the Lord's day. Why? Because the Lord's day is the day that Jesus came where? Out of the grave. And we have met today to celebrate his resurrection. Whether you knew it or not, when you drove out of your driveway, you were witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. You're saying Christ is alive. That's why I'm going on the first day, not the seventh day. Christ is alive. Now, the the principle of rest is a good principle. And all the law stands for truth, moral truth about God, which is represented in biblical principles. But God wants the circumcision of the heart that is intrinsic motivation to us to be holy, not extrinsic, not you must keep the law or the boogeyman will get you or the devil will clip off your, your hands. So the first thing he says, we're freed from the law. Secondly, we're freed from man-made worship. Verses 16, 17, and then verse 18 says, let no one defraud you of your reward or force you to take delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase which is from God. Now the Judaizers had come into the Colossian church And they said, now you've got to be circumcised and you've got to keep the law and you've got to observe the laws of drinks and and, uh, uh, food and you've got to observe the new moons and the festivals and you've got to observe all those things. And then they said, we are not good enough to go directly to Christ. And they had devised an intricate system of the worship of angels, that angels were our intermediaries to take us to God. And so he says, don't let them defraud you of your reward and take delight in a false humility. Oh, I can't go to God on my own, so I must go through Angel Archibald or Angel McLeod or whatever. And so Paul said, oh, no. There is one mediator between God and man. 
and that is the man Christ Jesus, one mediator. You don't need an angel. You don't need many angels. And you don't need to say, woe is me, I'm not worthy to come into God's presence. Because once I'm in Christ, I am permitted, I am encouraged, I am allowed to go directly to the Father in prayer. I can go directly to Him in conversation. I can go directly to the Father. I don't need any intermediary. You don't need me to get to God. And I don't need you to get to God. That is called the priesthood of the believer. We have a right through Christ on the standing and the basis of Christ. Not only are we freed from the law, we are freed from any man-made worship. Now, I think it's better that we get together with the people of God. We should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But we don't come together because this is the only place you can meet God. We come together because here, the Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts of all these people, we find encouragement and instruction and we find help and accountability and we find uh, uh, stimulation and we find uh, insight and we find testimonies and we find a network to pray for us and all the blessings of the group, of the body. But the third thing Paul says we're freed from we're freed from man-made rules in verse 20. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though you are living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Why do you let other people set up rules for you? Thou shalt not wear shorts. Now, granted, there's some of us that look better in long pants. That's a matter of wisdom, Amen. And you get to a certain age, you don't want to show those skinny legs anymore, right? I mean, I know. And, uh, you know, the old fat legs, they aren't what they used to be. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, another, that's not a religious decision. That's a personal decision. And he said, here it is. Regulations, do not touch, verse 21, do not taste, do not handle. Why do you subject yourself to legalistic rules? Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance. They look like, boy, he's a godly man. He doesn't wear shorts on Sunday afternoons before too. You know, when I was a boy, I was raised in such a, and I thank God for my, I'm going to tell you why I'm grateful for some legalism. <laughs> but when I was a boy, my father would not even shop in a store that sold beer, let alone eat in a restaurant that sold beer. You didn't eat in a restaurant that sold beer. How many of you were raised like that? That's the way I was raised. And, uh, and the legalism, listen, my mother never had a wedding band until she'd been married 40 years. Because you're not supposed to wear rings. Rings are worldly. I mean, doesn't First Peter say, ladies, let your beauty be the outward adorning. Uh, not, not the outward adorning, but the inward adorning of the heart. Don't let your beauty be the wearing of clothes or the wearing of gold or, or the braiding of your hair. Of course, if you're going to use that verse to prove that you shouldn't wear rings, you've got to use it to prove you shouldn't wear clothes too. But same thing. It's all in the same context. But that's where the church was 50 and 60 years ago. That's where they were. And out of that came a whole generation of people 
who were raised with a performance mentality that I've got to do more in order to please God. I've got to work harder in order to please my parents. And parents picked it up, and, and I've got to work harder. And from that came, uh, came some folks who never knew when to quit work. You know, I ain't got time to go see my child being born. I mean, uh, I, I got I to gotta work today. Uh, my, my good old dad, bless his heart, Steve and Cheryl had another baby. We had our 10th grandchild last week. I know, I don't look anywhere near old enough to have 10 grandchildren, do I? But there they are, count them on both hands and fingers. And now we're starting all over again. And uh, I called dad to tell him about the baby. And he said, well, that's good. And I said, well, Steve's not going to be preaching tomorrow. He's going to stay home with his family. He said, what? <laughs> you mean he's not going to preach? Why would anybody not preach in order to stay home with his baby? He can see her later. I just shook my head and I said, mm hmm that's what I'm talking about right there. That's it right there. <laughs> but that's a, the performance mentality, however, spills over in our lives in a lot of ways. That we've got to do all of these things. and I've got to be at the church seven nights a week in order to make God happy. And, and, and sometimes our parents were hard on us and very hard on us and created in us that same kind of, of attitude. I've got to come up to a man-made standard to please God and others, and finally then I set high standards for myself. Now, now the other end of that is the permissive parent. So do whatever you want to do. You want to sweep, sweep. If you don't want to sweep, don't sweep. I want to tell you something. I'd rather start out legalistic a performance mode and then moderate then start out the other because I found it's very tough to teach, pe teach people how to work when they get past 45. It is very tough. Did you know that? But it's a little easier to moderate the legalism than the permissivism. And I've often thought, I've weighed that so many times and I thank God for my strict background because it gave me time to sort it out and discover what, I, what was really my conviction and what was the truth of the Word of God. I'll give you an example of that. So Shirley is down in Greenville taking care of, of Cheryl and the baby and I'm by myself and I got up this morning and the bedroom was a horrible mess. I mean, the comfort was on the floor wrapped around one post the bed was not made. Two pairs of tennis shoes and old dirty socks were sitting out. My old jeans from doing some things yesterday. A couple of old shirts on the floor. The room looked like a disaster. I thought, if my wife came back and saw this bedroom, I am in serious trouble. And then I argued like I used to argue in college. Look, I'm the only one who's here. What difference does it make? Why, go, why waste all your energy putting that bed back together? Because in just 11 and three quarters hours, I'm going to pull it all apart again. <laughs> what difference does it make? And I'm probably going to use those shoes this afternoon, take a walk. So why put them in the closet? I just have to get them back out. So I turned to walk out and something inside me, it's a standard. It's just something that, that is left over, vestige of my legalistic past which said, oh, you better take care of this room. I still like enough structure that I went back and made that bed to a T. And then I thought, well, I made my kids do that when they were growing up. What if they came in and saw that? 
I'm in serious trouble. And then I put everything away and it was shining when I left. Now I got to church four minutes later than I should have, but my room, you ought to see it, it is in order. See, that's that old perfectionism. If we don't have some of that, if we don't have a little of that, if there's not some standard, then how are we going to be motivated? What does God use to motivate us? Now here is what I want to show you. Performance can lead to perfectionism, which can drive you crazy if you're not, if you're not careful. And perfectionism can lead you to a legalism. And here's my definition of legalism. Number one, setting rules beyond Scripture. That's legalism. Setting rules beyond Scripture. If the Scripture says it, you are bound under the Lordship of Christ to obey the Scripture. You interpret that Scripture and apply it. And let that principle be applied to your life. Secondly, setting rules, legalism is setting rules beyond Scripture for others. For others. Now there, we got a new thing. Do you remember when people first started wearing their hair down to their ears? I saw a picture of Gary Chapman the other day. He had long sideburns down here. And his hair was down covering the tops of his ears. And we used to have hair patrol guys around this church. They'd go around telling, don't you think you ought to get a haircut? Years ought to be showing. And they'd quote that scripture in Corinthians, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Well, in the context, what that means is long hair compared, you know, with a woman's hair. But, but that's legalism, setting rules beyond Scripture for others. You shouldn't be doing that. Why are you doing that? I thought Baptists didn't wear shorts. See? Setting rules for me. Me setting rules for you. Thirdly, setting rules beyond Scripture for others as a measure of godliness. There it is. That's legalism. Setting rules beyond Scripture for others as a measure of what makes you godly or not. I have a right to my interpretation of the Bible, and you have a right. God doesn't want us in bondage to others or to sin or to the world. And the favorite tactics of legalism are to put us in bondage to an inner guilt and in bondage to conformity to a crowd, to a group. Well, if you don't refrain from these things, the current in crowd will put you out. Now, what is the answer of truth to this dilemma? And how do we arrive free, set free from performance and perfectionism and legalism? I want to share with you several things here. The first is this. All freedom is based on the work of Christ at the cross. Boy, don't miss that. All freedom is based on the fact that Jesus earned my salvation. I cannot be good enough to be saved. Jesus earned my spirituality, my holiness. I cannot be good enough to be holy in my own strength. Which is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, look at it for a moment. Turn over there. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made a mature Christian by the flesh? No. 
You're not made mature by how well you tithe or how well you witness or how many times you come to church. I grow in Jesus by yielding and surrendering in obedience to the fullness of God's Spirit in my life and to resting in the work of Christ for my salvation and for my spiritual power. I rest in Christ and Christ alone. I love that song. What is that name of that song? In Christ alone I find my strength. That's it. It says it theologically. Secondly, learn to live by the word of God alone. Let the word of God be your standard alone. That's what Paul is trying to say in Romans 14 when he deals with the issue of the day and the issue of, uh, of uh, what day you're to worship. He says in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully convinced or persuaded in his own mind. You have the Holy Spirit within you and you have the right to go to the Word of God and say, all right, what does God require of me in the Word? And that is your changeless standard. You go by the Scripture. And if somebody tries to impose their rules on you, ask them to explain from the Scripture why they believe that. Hang to the Word of God. It is truth. And it is truth that sets us free. Thirdly, godliness comes from circumcision of the heart, not the body. Let me say that again. Godliness comes from a circumcision of the heart, not the body. Turn to Romans chapter 2 and listen to what Paul says. In verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a true Israelite, a true son of Abraham, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. True circumcision of the heart frees you from trying to be conforming to somebody else's rules and sets you free to do what God wants you to do. And just as in physical circumcision, the old flesh is cut away in spiritual circumcision. The old flesh is cut away and what remains is of God. See, if, if your heart is holy and you're holy because your heart is holy, then you can send your child to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and trust them to have the Holy Spirit and circumcision of the heart to guide them even when they're not around for you to impose their externally imposed legalistic rules on them. Amen? Do you see the difference? The child that is able to stand is one who's been circumcised in the heart. His heart is right with God and all the flesh and the old will and the old things are cut away and the truth of God has set him free. And you can send your child away with confidence knowing that his heart is right. And Christ is living in his heart and controlling him. And he's not dependent on you telling him, now be sure to brush your teeth. Boy, you better get him brushing your teeth long before he gets off to college because there'll be, be nobody there to tell him that. Amen. Have your quiet time. Get to church on the Lord's day. Get with a body of believers when you get to college. 
Paul explained it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He said, uh, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. The, the uh, fourth thing that I want to share with you, which is the way to live above legalism, somebody else's rules for you, is to claim the victory of the cross over the conscience. Wow. Claim the victory of the cross. Why are you here in Romans uh, 2? See, here's what the conscience is. Verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. See, if the Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament law, they had a moral law written within them. Now, he's setting you up. He says that the conscience is the, the moral capacity to know right and wrong within us. Now, verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So your conscience does two things. It's a moral policeman. It accuses or it excuses you. It says that's wrong or it says that's all right. And your conscience can be trained. It's trained by your parents. It's trained by what you were taught in Sunday school. It's trained by what you were taught in another church. It's trained by what you read. But when you come to Jesus Christ, the truth of God must instruct the conscience. The conscience can be trained. So if your conscience always accuses you of doing something wrong, that is a legalistic rule that somebody else imposed on you and is not necessarily wrong in the scripture, you need to let the scripture teach that conscience. By the way, parents, can I have the attention of every mom and dad who's got children? It's very, very critical training your child's conscience from the first days. Balance it between accusing and excusing. If you always make excuses for your child, he'll grow up never being able to acknowledge sin. Oh, Johnny, is that bad teacher picking on you again? Is that, uh, are the girls all trying to kiss you at school? <laughs> uh, it's not your fault. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into that. I just... A weird thought just flashed over my mind right then. But a parent must also train a child by accusing the child. You must hold the child accountable. And if you, if you overtrain the accusing function of the conscience, the kid is likely to grow up to be a perfectionist always trying to please you, always trying to come up to the standard you've set. So you've got to balance that between accusing and excusing. That's one of the greatest tasks a parent has. I tell you, that is, a, that is a job. It's a constant job, and it's a balanced job. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells us this. When he was arguing with the Corinthians about eating meat, he says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge that there are no idols. For some with consciousness of the idol and to now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. He said their conscience had been trained to think that eating meat offered to an idol was eating meat to something, but there is no such thing as an idol. And here Paul tells us that the truth of God, the knowledge of God, and, and the truth of the word of God trains a conscience 
to know victory over the conscience. And I want my conscience trained by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's just as important for me to learn it's wrong to gossip as it is wrong to commit adultery. But if you, in the church, because of the way certain sins are handled, certain sins are considered you know, worse than other sins because that's the way our consciences were trained. That's not necessarily the way the Bible sees it. The fifth and last one is we must forsake any glory in the flesh. If I want to live above perfectionism and legalism, I must forsake any glory in the flesh. Turn over to Galatians 6. This would be worthy of a message completely on this text. The Sunday school teachers look at this. I love this. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I want to tell you folks if my salvation depended upon my perfect performance I've fallen short and so have you. And if my holiness and godliness depends upon me, I'm falling short. I want to be holy so that I can please my Father. But I want to be holy because the Holy Spirit is in me and has promised me an abundant life as I learn to live under the Lordship of Jesus. And every sin in the life of a Christian brings somehow it brings hurt, harm, and pain to you sooner or later. And in the long run, so that your life will be free from slavery and you can be free to serve God and do what he wants you to do and not be a slave to guilt, a slave to shame, a slave to any church, a slave to anybody else's set of rules, God wants you free. Because if, if I could make myself holy, if I could save myself, I would glory in my flesh. But since I can't save myself and I can't make myself holy, I have no one to glory in but the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. Amen? Boy, I just want to revel in him. In 1985, Jose Cubero was only 21 years old, but he was the best known bullfighter in Spain. Now, maybe he rose to the top too soon. I answer questions like this constantly. I'm not growing fast enough in the Lord. I, I want to be holy, but faster. <laughs> Lord, fill me with your spirit and make me a 90-year-old a, a saint and do it now. Kid 17. You know, the concept of perfection, for me, here's the way God helped me. The concept of perfectionism had to be overcome by the concept of progress. And if I'm making progress in the faith, it's okay if I'm growing. Am I farther along? Not, not am I perfect. That's not the way I measure myself. But am I farther along this year than I was last year? Am I growing in Christ in my application of truth? Jose Cabello, 1985, 21 years old, best known matador in Spain. He's in a bullfight. He drives his sword through the bull and he turns to gloat and he raises his sword and turns to the crowd and boasts about what he's done. But the bull had been fatally injured, but he was not over. And the bull rose 
and charged him from the back and the roar of the crowd, he could not hear the bull coming. And the bull's horns came back and pierced him through the back and through the heart. And at age 21, the greatest matador in Spain was killed because he was boasting. So the truth of Christ in the cross sets us free from guilt and shame and a performance syndrome, perfectionism and legalism. I am free, free to do what Christ wants me to do and to be his slave. Boy, do you desire that freedom? Amen, amen. Let's stand in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And to thank you for the truth about Jesus and the cross which sets us free. Speak to those who've never been saved or to those who need a church family and draw them to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.